Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. And Jason continues in part two of last week's message in a sermon that he's entitled The Miraculous Message, part two. Let's join Jason now and turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Here's Jason. I am Pastor Jason, and once again, welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. We are very excited to have you. If you have not been with us before, or you've only been with us a couple of times, we would love to hear a little bit more about you, get to know you. If you have any questions about the church, please fill out your little information card. We wouldn't require you to put any money in the offering as the little pouches are passed around, but you could drop this in to just let us know that you were visiting. Well, we are continuing our way through the book of Acts. We are to chapter 5, and we are not going to finish chapter 5 today, but we are getting closer with each subsequent week. And now that I'm not doing anything related to community groups, I actually get to spend the whole time in the Word. Praise the Lord. And as I was considering what I've entitled the, the Miraculous Message Part 2 today, I, I kept thinking about persecution. I, I kept thinking about oppression and, and, and this question, why does oppression, why does persecution come to a particular church? And I don't know what your answer would be, but as I've been looking at the book of Acts and thinking through and even thinking about the history of the church, I... I believe that the purity of the church has a lot to do with the persecution of a particular church. And I believe that that a church that isn't pure, that doesn't care about dealing with sin, where sin goes rampant and, and is unchecked, Satan doesn't care about that church. But what Satan's concerned with is like the church that we see here in Acts that's concerned with sin. And as I as I thought back to our time in Papua New Guinea, as Christ built His church among this people group called the Siawi people, what we saw is basically the same thing. That as they grew in God's grace, as they grew in their understanding of who God is, and as sin was dealt with within the body, and as they became more and more serious about sin, well, the persecution of the church and the opposition rose up more and more and, and, and became more and more intense to such an extent that as we were as I was teaching through 1 Corinthians, and in particular when I got to chapter 5, one man got so upset with, with the teaching of God's Word that, that he came in hol- holding this, well, this, this makeshift torch and, and the flame was up a couple inches as in, and as he comes into the, the church, his idea was to burn the church down because of the things that were being taught. And he walks up, and remember, this is a thatch roof, so, so it's all leaves. And in any normal instance, him just getting close with the fire would have torched the whole place. He comes in, and I can remember him vividly holding that makeshift torch up to this thatch, and, in, and instead of engulfing into flames, nothing happens. And he looks at it and he holds it down and looks at it and then holds it up a second time and still nothing happens. Instead, he, his hand kind of goes crazy and goes all the way up to the top 
And instead of lighting everything on fire, it just extinguishes the flame. And he, and he, and he says something that, well, I, I can't repeat in Siawi because it would have been a curse word. But he, he says that out loud and ta- takes this makeshift torch and, and throws it and then leaves the church. I, I say all that to say that that opposition and persecution to the church still happens today. It's going to continue to happen. Why? Because Satan obviously is not happy with the proclamation of God's Word. With a church that, that stands for the Gospel, that preaches the Gospel, that stands on God's Word and deals with sin. So turn with me to, to Acts chapter 5. And let's look at verses 17 to 26. And we're going to see four actions that take place as a result of this miraculous message that is going on in this definitely not perfect but pure church as they have now been seen to to drive the sin out of their church and to deal with it in in a godly way, even a miraculous way. Verse 17, But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, at the doors. but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word, for Your most holy and powerful word. Thank you for the depiction of the early church, for the example that they are to us, Lord. And we pray that you would work in our hearts and lives now, that you would change us through your word, that you would embolden us as you embolden the the apostles, that you would give us a confidence that comes only through you and because of you, and that you would be honored and glorified through our lives, through our church and that we would continue to stand upon Your Word, and that we would be heralds of Your Gospel. Now guide our time through the wonderful work of Your Holy Spirit as He makes Your Word clear to us. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. So as I said, what we're going to see is four actions that, that take place because of what was happening within this church. We know now because of what has been happening and what we saw earlier in chapter 5 
that this church is making more and more of a name for itself. That even those outside the church are now most likely talking about the church. Talking about the wonderful things that are happening as a result of the church, the miracles that are happening. And no doubt talking about the teaching that is happening through the church, in the church, by the church. And yet those outside the church are also involved. Even though they're, they're, they're more giving a stiff arm to the church, they recognize that what is going on is something incredible. And so no doubt as the popularity of the church grows and grows and grows, some actions take place. And what we're going to see first is we're going to see the persecution of the church in verses 17 to 18. Then we're going to see the proclamation in verses 19 to 21. We're going to see the discovery in verses 22 to 25. And finally, we're going to see the recovery in verse 26. And why is all this happening? Because Satan and the world will always be provoked into action by a church that's pure, that's preaching and standing upon God's Word. And that's the first thing that we see. The persecution. This isn't the first time we've seen it. But as we will notice, we'll see that it is ramped up, that it is intensified as far as the persecution goes. And no doubt what's underlying this is indeed Satan. And that again, what has he tried to do? First he came after it from without. Then he came within with Ananias and Sapphira. They dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. And so now what does Satan do? He comes back at them again from without. Look at verses 17 to 18. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. So we see first how this persecution is really driven by three different thrusts. Really three different angles that they're they're going after the apostles. There's an emotionally charged aspect where where it's all emotional. We, We see that there's a physically imposed aspect where they physically do something to them. And then finally we're going to see that that it's socially driven. They want everybody in the public to to recognize what they are doing. And so what does it say that that they do? First we see the high priest. The one in in charge. And, And who does he gather with? He gathers with all of his associates. Literally all those together with him and it's speaking of the Sadducees. And what does it say in particular about the Sadducees? It says that they were filled with jealousy. This is an intense negative feeling over another's achievement or their particular success. And and I'm sure we can all relate with jealousy on in one way or another. And yet we haven't seen this represented in, 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 in the lives of the Sadducees up until this point. And so even in this, we can, we can see a ramping up. Now they're taking it personally. And we could consider this as misguided zeal. And what happens is, is they look at all that is happening with, with the apostles. And they see the prestige. They see the honor that they're getting. And no doubt they want that. And they don't want them to keep getting it. And so they become jealous. But are, are they jealous just of the apostles? Or could it be too that they are indeed jealous of Jesus? I believe it's, it's both. On, on the one hand, they are indeed jealous of the apostles. But on the other hand, they are indeed jealous of Jesus. Why? Because it's the, it is the name of Jesus that is being proclaimed. It is the name of Jesus that is being taught. It is in the name of Jesus that all these miracles are happening. And we have to remember that it 
was this Jesus whom they crucified. And if we were to take a walk through the book of Luke, what we would notice is that instead of the Sadducees taking center stage in opposition against Jesus, who we see taking center stage in the Gospels are the Pharisees. And yet, in the book of Acts, we're going to continue to see this. The ones who take center stage, who step up to the plate in order to completely oppose Christ are the Sadducees. They are against Him continually. And and we see that here in in the persecution of, of the apostles in verses 17 to 18. And first we see it's this emotional charge that they are indeed jealous of of the power, the prestige, the authority that they are wielding and and where they are wielding it in particular. Why? Because they're meeting right on the temple grounds, which is the territory of the Sadducees. That's what they were in charge of. But we see that there's more than just this emotional charge. It it, it becomes physical as it says they laid laid hands on the apostles. And, And that means to lay hands on with the idea of doing violence to that person. When they send these guys to get the apostles, it isn't like these soldiers are being all kind and patient and loving and gentle with them. It's more like a brute squad going after them with clubs and forcefully imposing themselves upon them. But we don't see it's just the fact that it's emotional, that it's physical, but we also see that there's this socially driving aspect behind them as well as it says that they put them where? They put them in a public jail. This means a jail in a particular location that's right in the eye of the public. That everyone can see. And that is indeed what they are trying to accomplish. They they wanted to make their arrest very visible and a public point. That everybody would know, oh, this is what is going on. This is what happens when you don't do what we told you to do. And yet, in this, cannot we see that there there is a major intensification, a ramping up of the persecution from what we saw earlier, even in chapter 4, where where they come after them, but it's totally different. In, in, In that case, they only come after Peter and John, right? Now we see here that all the apostles are placed in jail. The the first time, it's a lot mellower of a persecution. And they let them go. I believe in in this case, they had no intention of letting them go. They they wanted this to go in a direction where finally it would end up most likely like Jesus, where they could just wipe out these 12 apostles and be done with this. That's what their thought was. And even in this, we we clearly see that that there's a a, a pattern emerging with, with how... Things are happening in the book of Acts. First we see a healing. Then we see preaching. Because healing never takes place in and among itself. Even with all these miracles, there's, there's always preaching and teaching that goes along. And then we see a popular response. And following the prop, popular response, what do we see? We see an attempt by the authorities to stop the preaching. To stop this thing from going on. And isn't it interesting? I mean, just think about it for a moment. The Lord has done all of these things in the public's eye, right? To where so many people know that there are some miraculous things happening. And this particular group, the high priests, the Sadducees, they know about the paralyzed man. They know no doubt about what's happened recently. 
And yet, they believe that if they can just go ahead and stick the apostles in prison, that that's going to end it. Don't you think that, that, that they should have recognized that you can't hold God back? That you can close the prison doors, but that's not going to stop God. And that's exactly what we see happen next, right? Look at verse, verses 19 to 20 as we see here the proclamation. Again, that's where all this is pointing. It's not pointing to the miracle. The miracle of, of the angel coming and opening and freeing them, again, is, only serves the purpose to tell them to do what they are about to do, which is to proclaim the message of life, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 19 and 20. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So we see first when this happens, this happens at night so that none of them would be aware. We, we see what happens first. The Lord sends an angel. An angel comes and what does he do? He opens the gates that could be understood as the doors. So he pulls everything that needs to be pulled, opens the doors, and then he leads them out. And then he doesn't stop there, right? He tells them exactly what they're supposed to do. Which, logically and human speaking wise, doesn't make any sense. He, he tells them, go back to the temple. He actually gives them two commands. He says, first, I command you, go. The other command is, speak. And then he tells them the manner by which they're supposed to do the speaking stand. Because that is the way that, that they communicated in, in speech and doing some sort of big oration back in those days. They had to stand. It showed the authority and the importance of the message that they were preaching. And even in these commands, there's so much depth to them. <laughs> they are so deep that the, the verb to go, when he tells them to go, it's with the idea of going to a particular place. Say, not, you just don't go wherever you want to go. You go here. Go to the temple. And then what does it mean, the message of, of this life? He, he has to be talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what, what it says in Acts 3.15? It says that Jesus is, is characterized there as the prince of life. He's the author of life. He himself in John 14, 6 says that he is what? The way, the truth, and the life. Eternal life is only found in Christ. So that is what the angel is telling them to do. To go and proclaim the gospel. To go and tell about Jesus. And even in this, this is God's grace, is it not? Because by telling them to go to the temple, he is telling them to go to the Jews whose leaders are the very ones that put them in jail, the very ones that are opposing them. And yet God's grace is still reaching out. He still wants the Jews to be saved. And notice here that, that the apostles, they're not set free to, to run for the hills, to hide out somewhere. They're set free for a purpose, and that purpose is to reach the ones that truly are in captive. Isn't that ironic? He sets them free in order to go to the ones who don't even know they're captive. Who don't even know they're captive to sin. And, and there to go and to help them to see the good news about Jesus. And we can see that, that God is indeed watching over them. Even though as, as you just look at the circumstance, they may think, oh, wh where is our God? Well, God comes and sends an angel to them. This won't be the first time that we'll see some miraculous escape from a prison. We're going to see it again in, in chapter 12 
verses 6 to 10, where Peter by himself is, is freed. But then in, in, in chapter 16, in 25 to, to 26, Paul and Silas are, are, are in prison. And there, if, if you remember, God allows an earthquake to come. And even though they're shackled in chains, the earthquake somehow, which isn't the normal use of an earthquake, if you have an earthquake, it's not going to normally break open your chains and let you go free. It's just going to shake the ground and make you fall. But, but here, obviously, God is doing much more than that. He breaks their chains and releases them. And yet here in chapter 5, He doesn't use an earthquake. Why, why is that? Why doesn't God use an earthquake in order to save them and to miraculously free them? Because there's more to it than just the fact that He doesn't use an earthquake. There's great significance in the fact that God sent an angel. Why? Because it was the Sadducees that had put them in this place. And do you know what the two things are that the Sadducees do not believe in? It's what separates them from the Pharisees and so many other sects in Judaism at this time. On the one hand, they don't believe in all sorts of supernatural things, but mainly they don't believe in angels. And then on the other hand, you know what else they don't believe? They don't believe in the resurrection. So God sends them an angel to rescue them. And then God tells them to go and to preach about the resurrection. The two things that would just infuriate these guys. It's, it's almost funny, isn't it? It's so ironic that that's who God sends to save them. He sends them an angel that they wouldn't even believe in to preach about a resurrection that they also don't believe in. As if to let the Sadducees know you guys have missed it. You're, you're holding to something that isn't the truth of what has been communicated to you for so long. And then we see this is exactly what they do. They go and they preach this, this good news. Look at verse 21, just the first half. What happens next after the angel tells them to do this? Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to preach. So what do the apostles do? I won't say they instantly obey the command of the angel. I'd say that they quickly obey the command of the angel. Why? Because the angel came at night. And when they go to the temple, it's daybreak. The Scriptures don't tell us how much time took place from the event where they were freed to when they actually went and started, started preaching it at the temple. But there had to be some sort of time. And at that time, what did they do? Did they go home? Did they get a couple hours of extra sleep? I, I don't know. But really what is important is the fact that they go and they do exactly what the angel tells them to do. Which do you not think that would take amazing courage? To go back to this place. Why? Because because they went to what, what had to be considered the the most public place they could go to. To go to the temple. Where, where they would know that when they went there, everybody would see them. And, and they go there quickly, early in the morning, recognizing for sure the consequences of their actions. No doubt they recognized they were walking right into the lion's den. And yet, did that stop them? No. They continued to walk in obedience with such boldness. That boldness had to come from the Lord. And yet look at how the Sadducees respond. Look at the second half of verse 21. 
Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. I believe that if the Sadducees had known in the high priest at this point that they had no prisoners, that they never would have called for, for this group to come. That at first they would have figured out what's going on and then may, they would have tried to alleviate the situation, fix the problem, and then called everybody. But instead, because they don't know what had happened the previous night, they're just thinking, okay, we're just going to keep going with the plan that we have, which is to bring this whole body together. And so who does the high priest call? He calls the, his associates, the, the council, which no doubt is the Sanhedrin, the equivalent to the Supreme Court for the Jewish system at that day. And then we have this other word, together even all the Senate of the sons of Israel. That's just another word when it says the Senate. It's, an, it's another way of stating the Sanhedrin. Between the Old and the New Testament and what they call the intertestamental time, this is how they, they would depict the Sanhedrin before they started using that name Sanhedrin. So Luke is just using both adjectives to describe the same thing he's, he's talking about. Indeed, the Sanhedrin. But I don't believe the idea is to so much emphasize the Sanhedrin as it is to emphasize the fact that they wanted every available leader to come and to meet with them. Why? Because they wanted this thing to end. They wanted it to stop. And they were going to do whatever they needed in order to stop it right now. And no doubt, probably where they were heading was they were just going to go ahead and allow all the twelve apostles to be crucified, perhaps. And isn't it interesting that, that we see here that there are guards guarding a cell that contains no one. <laughs> and we see that there's a group of the, of, you know, the Supreme Court type of people gathering together to make this pronouncement, to make this judgment on a group of people that they no longer had. <laughs> There's so much irony in this that it's almost funny. And yet God doesn't keep them in the dark very long. As we see that next they come up with this, the great discovery. Look at verses 22 to 23. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. So what we see here really is two discoveries. What, what we see here is the first discovery is the discovery that they did not have them locked up like they thought they had them locked up. What we're going to see next in the next set of verses is the discovery that they're actually at the temple preaching. And we see the contrast between what had happened the previous night and, and with what they thought was going on with, again, the, the contrast word, but they no doubt were expecting the apostles to be where? To still be in prison. And yet we see from the words that they use to describe how these men talk about what this looked like, man, it leaves little doubt in our minds that it looked just like it was when they locked them in in the first place. First it says the, author, the, the officers could not find them. That This word isn't just you go one time and you look really quickly and then you run back. No, these guys recognize that if they had gone loose and that if these guys were indeed not in prison, it was their lives. So it wasn't like this was just a five-minute little quick in search and then let's go run and, and tell them that they've escaped. 
It was, no, let's look around everywhere and let's see if we can figure out what happened. Maybe they got moved last night. We didn't know about it or this or that. And yet the reality is they could not find them. And then it says that the, that the prison house was locked. It's to be shut, to lock, to bar, so that you, you prevent anyone from coming inside. It was just as they had left it. And then it says quite securely. That means with all security, exactly the way that they had left it. But wait a minute, Pastor Jason. I thought it said that when the angel came that he opened the doors. Well, he must have closed them after he was done to make it look exactly like it was before so that they would not know. Again, to emphasize the fact that Satan isn't going to stop God from doing what he is planning on doing. He isn't going to stop Christ from building his church. The government isn't going to stop him. God is going to accomplish what he purposes. And this is what we see. And even though this report is is quite matter-of-fact and quite simply stated, we know that exactly what it is saying is incredibly earth-shattering. You can see that in verse 24 in the way they respond. As now we're told of of a different person who's involved in the mix. Not just the high priest now, but look at 24. Now when the captain of the temple of the guard, we haven't seen him up to this point. And the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. Remember, the captain of the temple guard, he's the commander responsible for the temple in Jerusalem. He kept the peace at the temple. And in essence, what he was is he's the head of the police force. And he was considered the number two man behind the high priest. Very influential had much authority. And we see him being mentioned now, along with the chief priests. And, and what is it that, that, that they're left as? They're left in a greatly perplexed, not knowing what would come about. Greatly perplexed means to be very confused, to be at a loss, and to not have any idea what to do. And as to what would come of this, I don't believe that they were concerned that they were going to lose their lives. Why? Because they were on the upper echelons of the leadership structure. They're too high to be knocked down. So it's going to be the lower ones if anything's going to happen. What are they so upset about? What they're so upset about is they don't, do not know what's going to happen next. In their minds, I'm sure as they're thinking through everything, they're assuming that yes, once a prisoner, or in this case 12 prisoners escape, the natural tendency then is to do what? To run and hide. And I don't know how much time takes place from verse 24 to 25, but if it was a long time, I'll bet they had all sorts of thoughts and ideas on how they were going to fix this. And yet, look at verse 25. (laughs) Again, this is ironic in the way that it's presented to us in the Scriptures. But someone, it doesn't even tell us who, but someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Someone, again, we don't know who it is, and in, and in the Greek, this is, this is so much more emphatic than, than the way that it is in, in English. In the Greek, this is yelling out to us, exclamations to us. And, and, and the first thing that, that we don't see, it, at least in my New American Standard, that, that might be in your ESV if you have that version, is, is this word that's not translated, but it's there in the Greek. And, and it's the word that would start the sentence as it gets into what this someone says. What this someone says first isn't that the men whom you look in first, what he says is, look! <laughs> and, it, and it's this idea of, 
not, not just an exclamation, but an exclamation with location. Hey, look! <laughs> right, right over there. Guys, do you, do you get it? And then there's even more emphasis on not, not just anybody, but you yourselves who put them in jail. You guys look. Isn't that them? Isn't, isn't that the guys that you guys put in jail? That you guys put in prison? And then notice exactly what he says. Did, did, did you catch this? What does he say about what they're doing? He says they're standing in the temple teaching the people. Is that not exactly what the angel told them to do? We, we see the obedience of the apostles to do exactly what the angel commanded them to do. Even in the manner by which he told them to do it standing. He tells them to go to the temple, they go to the temple. He tells them to teach, and as you do it, make sure you're standing. That's exactly what they're doing. And isn't it ironic that that instead of being behind bars as they thought that they were, they're actually outside in the temple preaching. Yet this isn't the end of the narrative, is it? There's so much more to, to what goes on. At this point, you would think this would be a great ending. <laughs> and, and I could just, hey, this would be a, a much better place for me to end a sermon. And we just all say, oh, this is great. Look at what God did. He did this miraculous thing, brought them out, put them at the temple, and now, man, 3,000 are saved or this or that. Well, that, that isn't the next verse, right? What, what we see happening next actually looks like this could be a, a victory of Satan, Right? You would have thought that God would have put some force, force field around them and, and kept them from this recovery because that's what happens next. Look at verse 26. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. So what happens that the captain and all of his officers go and they bring them back? Notice the significance behind who went along with the officers this time. No doubt as we look at verse 17 and we see this group meeting with the high priest, these group of Sadducees. And then in verse 21, that second half where, where the high priest and the Sanhedrin get together. You know who was among them? It had to be that this captain of the police force was with them. He no doubt was the one commanding his officers to go and get them. But why in the world do you see this man with such prestige and authority actually accompanying the brute squad to go with them at this point? We didn't see that earlier, but we see it now. Why? Because it reveals the significance of what was going on. That they did not want to mess this up twice. They're thinking, oh, yes. Look, they're at the temple. This is easy. And Well, hold on. Let's make sure. Well, then you go with them and you make sure that nothing gets messed up. You can't mess this up. You you need to bring these guys back. And yet notice in there how the apostles respond. I I would think that at this point they, they could have responded a whole bunch of different ways. They could have said, no, 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 this is where the angel told us to come and to and to preach. And so we're just gonna preach. Or they could have instilled something in the crowd, right? Because no doubt they were popular because everybody knew about them. And no doubt when they showed up at the temple and they were preaching, everybody put one and one together and said, oh yes, God must have done this. 
But instead of putting the crowd against these soldiers and the captain of the guard, they just willingly submit. Why is that? Where did they learn this from? They learned it from their Lord. They learned it from Jesus, right? Do you, do you remember in Luke 22, 47 to 53, is the chief priests, the officers, the leaders, they all come to take Jesus. And what does Peter want to do? He wants to fight. But what does Jesus want to do? He goes willingly. No doubt they learned that from Jesus and no doubt Peter might have even reminded them. But I think, too, something else that God had done that Christ continued to work in their hearts and in their lives was building their faith. That they now recognized that God was on their side, that God was with them every step of the way. And so as a result, they're like, sure, okay, we'll go with you. And I, and I wonder, as they're walking back, being led in this progression, this procession of all these people with the, you know, the soldiers and everything else, if maybe they were talking among each other. Okay, so I wonder, last night it was an angel. An angel came. That's what the Lord did in order to, to save us. I, I wonder what the Lord's going to do tonight. What, what is He going to do through this situation? How is He going to be manifested? Man, let's just watch and wait and see how God works. But look at the last verse, and I'll close with this. Or I'm sorry, the tail end of the last verse, verse 26. As it says this, For they were afraid of the people. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things that it could have said that they were afraid of, they were afraid of the people instead of they feared God, they feared people. And if you're like me, you can relate. Don't we oftentimes think more about what other people are thinking and how they're going to respond to actually what God is thinking? And aren't we more fearful oftentimes than of what others think and, and their approval than we are of what God thinks? And should we not all fear God? I, I ask you today, do, do you fear our God in reverence and respect, recognizing how He wants us to obey Him. To lovingly submit to Him and what He has for us. Remember, this is all in the context of allowing the apostles to do what? To go and to preach the Gospel. The message of life. This message of life. Do we recognize how important that message is? That God wants to use us in others' lives to allow the Gospel message to continue to go out to continue to be poured forth. So what have we seen today in, in these verses? I, I would say what we've seen is we've seen how Satan responded to the purity of the church. And, and he responded with persecution. But we also see that you can't stop God. And, and with the deliverance of the angel, that, that we see the proclamation of the message of this life, the Gospel, and how important it is for you and I to be heralds of this message. And yet the leaders, they didn't even recognize what is going on. And so we see them make the great discovery and even that is God's grace to them. And this discovery then finally leads to final, this, this recovery. And you could think that, that Satan is, has his way, but we're going to see next week that this is all part of God's plan. 
that he again places Peter in a position to preach to the Sanhedrin one more time to give them an opportunity to repent. And that none of this takes God by surprise. That all of this can fall right into God's providential purposes and plans. Because that's how great God is. So let me just leave us all with with two points to ponder. The first one. Consider how the persecution of the early church was, was driven by these three different thrusts that we saw. That it was emotionally charged, physically imposed, and socially driven. And, and the, the fact that God wants to remind us that Satan in the persecution of Christ's church, it's not going to stop until Christ establishes His kingdom. And in essence, what we're seeing is we're seeing the suffering of the apostles, just as Christ suffered, innocently suffering. Christ hadn't done anything wrong, and the apostles, at, at this point, they haven't done anything wrong either. So what do you think about suffering? Do you view it as something for your good? And, and what is God's perspective on suffering? Number two, consider how the, the apostles were not set free to run for the hills and to hide out, but they were set free for the purpose to preach the gospel to those that were captive. And is this not true for all of us? We're not saved or set free so that we can enjoy our own comfort or our own ease, but so that we can live for Christ and share Christ with others. When is the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? Is it soon or or do you have to go back a a ways in, in your past and think, oh, when was the last time? Man, this is challenging to me to think through these things. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the depiction, the example of the early church, Lord, for the boldness that they had. We pray, Lord, that You would work in us to be bold, to share You with others, and that You would continue to use Your Word in our hearts and our lives to transform us. Allow us not to just be hearers of the Word, but that we would be doers of Your Word, Lord. Thank you for this day and for the time that we've got to spend in your wonderful word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. If you have any questions regarding this sermon or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.